Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. All right. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast. I'm your host, Eric Scoville, and to my left here is Isaac Bennett. We are uh, so excited to go into this, uh, this next episode here and get into the meat of, of what we're trying to present here. Thank you for uh, surviving the first three episodes, those monologues <laughs> that I started with here. I, as I mentioned in the beginning, a little bit awkward getting over that phase, but uh, I'm excited to get into the interviews here, start leaning into the meat of what we're trying to present with this podcast. So, Wealth Well Done Podcast. This is we're going after the tactical, practical, and spiritual uh, advice to help you do your wealth well done. So, first disclaimer that we always get started with is all the advice on here is meant to be generic. This is not uh, financial advice given to specifically to your situation. So, please consult with your professional team to see if this is a good fit for you. Next disclaimer is talking to my producer. Uh, he gave me the advice to not spend time getting to know the the uh, interviewee very well. So he said, oh, just jump right into the meat right away. They don't really need to know too much about your background. So this is my business partner, Isaac Bennett. I am incredibly, incredibly grateful to uh, have met him and got to go into business with him. He has flipped my world over uh, multiple times already in the last little bit since we've gotten to, gotten to know each other here. So Isaac is the founder of the UR brand. Let you maybe do a quick intro on the UR brand and what that is. Um, what I really think of, of Isaac uh, is he is a complete dismantler of most financial advisors because he lets them realize <laughs> just how much they don't actually know. So Uh-oh. Isaac, would you give a brief intro on on your role inside UR and REM, and then we'll jump into it. Yeah, definitely. So you are, thank you, Eric, by the way, first of all, for having me. Eric had a baby, well, his wife had a baby like uh, two days ago, two days right? Ago. Yep. So uh, we're doing this right after that. So you're a trooper, man. That's awesome. I appreciate you having me here. Um, you are, yes, my wife, Blake, and I founded You Are uh, two years ago tomorrow, actually, really? as our, yes, yes, as we record this two years ago tomorrow. And uh, the premise here is that any uh, company, we call them agencies that falls within the You Are brand has to be a brand that lifts people up. Our tagline, Nike has just do it. We have a people brand. The idea here is that it's difficult to exhort somebody without first saying You Are. I might say, Eric, you are an excellent podcast host. Or if you if you receive that or if you don't, I might say, Eric, you are an excellent hockey player, right? Eric's a, a professional hockey player in his past. So you know he is an excellent hockey player. No, <laughs> But the, the premise is, is we want to affect the world, right? We don't just want to... We're not in business to make money. Uh, primarily, we're here to lift people up and exhort people. So that's the background of UR. We have four different uh, companies within UR, of which uh, as... You mentioned you're a partner in UR Launched, which is absolutely phenomenal. I don't know if we'll get into that tonight, maybe another time, but it's been super fun to, to work with you and uh, grow with you, argue with you, whatever it may be. So it's all fun. And so coming up in two weeks, the listeners will get introduced to Robert Rissenthaler. Great. Um, and so we're going to talk more about REM, but will you just give a brief description of REM and what your role is there? Yeah, REM Capital is a... Uh, full-service real estate syndicator. Syndicator is a fancy word for operator or partnership, right? So um, 
I was a real estate investor for a long time doing deals in my own account where I was doing quite literally everything, even the property management. And it took me a really long time to learn as do most things that uh, I wasn't all that great of an operator. And um, ultimately, that real estate was very difficult, especially if you don't have scale. So I went out and started following syndicators and said, all right, these guys that are managing, you know, half a billion or a billion dollars, how are they doing it? And what I found out was I wasn't going to do that. That was way too hard. But I found that investing with them passively could offer dramatically higher returns than I was making in my own account, way less risk. And, you know, my name wasn't on the note. I wasn't exposed to property liability. I wasn't taking tenant calls and the returns were higher than I was getting. Why? They're professional operators. They are, um, they have massive scale and in general, they know what they're doing really, really well. It's important, right? And that frees your time up to go out and do what I do best, which we haven't found what it is yet, but that's right. (laughs) Good idea. Yeah. So, um, That's how I got introduced really to many syndicators, but REM was my favorite. So I like to say that with REM, we were a buyer of this product before we were a seller of it. So we partnered with uh, Robert on three deals. We brought uh, about $9 million to those three deals, uh, roughly. And then uh, Robert and I decided to join forces. And we effectively are the uh, investor relations team for REM. So I'm a partner at REM, uh, as are you. And we um, just get to work. We have the great honor and pleasure of working with REM's amazing investor base every day. So it's been really phenomenal working with them. Robert's just been, um, he's a great mentor. He's a great teacher. And I think anybody that gets exposed to him understands that he knows exactly what he's talking about when it comes to multifamily real estate. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. The Maybe the viewers at some point will get the, the uh, privilege of watching the two of you go at it on a conversation, but for right now, they'll, they'll deal with me just uh, asking you guys questions. So, so jumping into it. Um, so Isaac and I have been on many calls with, uh, with financial advisors, with CPAs, and, um, and it, it's just never, it never ceases to amaze me how uh, different of approach you take toward investing than the average financial advisor. And I mentioned this a little bit in the beginning podcast where I was just kind of give an overview of what we're going to do here that these are things that 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 you're probably not hearing about you know a listener has a financial advisor they're probably not hearing about a lot of what we're doing they, this isn't something that is is common it's not something that I even want people to uh, be upset with their financial advisor about for not knowing because it's not something that we're trained on you know as I was tr- coming up in the financial advising world it's not something that we were trained on mm. and so you know giving some grace there but when you look at investing, you don't just look at a diversified portfolio of large cap, mid cap, small cap, emerging markets and international stocks and that and call it good there. So how do you approach investing? I just don't think that's investing. Mm. All right. Yeah. So um, those are products. And we're we are OK to offend people here. Yeah. And I'm, I, I respect financial advisors. I'm sitting across from one. Um, I, I do not belittle the industry. I have uh, many friends that are financial advisors and and some of them are incredibly knowledgeable. I just think that you have to be aware that when you are working with a financial advisor in a typical fashion, you're buying products, right? Right. And those products come with, in some cases, tons of fees, uh, whether they're management fees, whether they are load fees, whether they are wh- whatever they may be, right? Not even here to get into it. But Ultimately, you should be wary when what you're buying, you don't understand. And I think part of the, the 
problem with a lot of these things is they're a giant soup of maybe companies, maybe derivatives, maybe bonds, whatever they may be. And I think that the average person out there or even the well above average investor out there has absolutely no idea what they're buying. And take it a step further, the financial advisor doesn't know what they're selling. This is also true. And you know, when you look at it that way, you have to think about your counterparty. Who's the counterparty in this? And your counterparty is somebody in New York that's packaging these things together. And they are not nearly as safe as they want you to believe they are. They're not nearly as efficient as they want you to believe that they are. And ultimately, they don't rely on the skill of operators of these particular businesses that they want you to think that it does. We haven't even talked about valuations or what you're actually paying for these things. We're going there next. We're going there. Okay. I'll stop there then. I think that the point stands for itself, which is what Wall Street has said, this is investing. This is what you should do. Here's a 60-40 diversified. First of all, it's not diversified. And second of all, they're talking to you irrespective of price. They're talking to you irrespective of fees. And those things are absolutely critical to understanding the quality of an investment. But I've seen the chart, the chart back dating back to right before the Great Depression in every financial advisor's office and just goes up and to the right. It always does. And it goes down a little bit, but it just keeps going up and to the right. That's great. And I'm a huge believer in betting on the advancement of humankind. I'm a huge believer in investing in companies. I'm a huge believer in, in the tenacity and perseverance and persistence of humans. I, I'm absolutely a huge believer in that. I'm also a huge believer in knowing exactly who you're investing with and exactly what price you're paying for it. Now, the only other thing I would say is, does life exist in the chart? It does not. It doesn't. It doesn't. And the problem is, is that it's always cherry picking timeframes. Because I think anybody, I'm 36 years old. I think anybody that is my age, they have seen or remember three absolutely vicious whipsaws that cost people tons and tons and tons of money. And the problem is, is it, um, it preys on your worst instinct. When you have paper products like this that you're buying, it preys on your worst instincts, which says, I need to protect my capital at the worst possible times, which is when the market's down. Right. And so many people simply don't have the fortitude or the understanding to, to know that the markets are always against them. The markets are always there to take money from the weakest hands. And at a later time, we're going to get into the hedge fund conversation. So we will, we will absolutely go after that uh, of exactly what happens inside institutions uh, every day that are looking to take money out of the weakest hands. That's a great point. And we're going to come into, we're going to go into liquidity a little bit here too. So much of the, the pushback we've ever received regarding, uh, regarding venture capital or any type of private equity type investment is, is the risk is too high. And, and people ask all sorts of really, honestly, I'm going to go ahead and say good questions. There's a ton of good questions that are the diligence behind uh, why we're making the investment the way we are. Yet, none of that type of, Rigamore is 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 used when it's time to look at any of the ETFs that they're putting their own clients in. And so how do you how would you approach, you know, again, direct this not toward the financial advisor, direct this toward the listener here who is getting advice from from their financial advisor, from their friends who are doing these wild venture capital things and and they don't want to be exposed to that much risk, but help them understand how should they look at deciding what 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 is a good investment for them or 
or should they be all in the stock market? Well, this is actually where I think a, a, a financial advisor that is not concerned with gathering AUM can be very helpful, which is, what is my position sizing? What are my needs? What am I trying to accomplish? What um, are we looking into the future and knowing? Is my daughter getting married in five years? Am I sending a kid to college? Am I saving up for a house? What types of things do I need to be understanding for how to allocate my portfolio? Those are all things where I think a, um, someone like yourself is a wonderful complement to thinking about that. And then when you start getting into deal-specific things, that really depends on the asset class, right? Because the way you underwrite or look at a multifamily real estate deal is completely different from the way that you would look at a biotech venture capital sure. deal, right? Yeah. So um, for me, it starts with the people involved and their track record and understanding whether or not they have the credibility or not to be running people's money. And part of the problem with this industry is that many people that go out there and actually syndicate deals or put together things, they don't have the credibility or the track record to actually be doing this. And so it, it all starts there for me. And then it's about understanding, do they understand how to invest through market cycles? One of the things that we're seeing right now, as we're seeing all these bank failures, is that we have effectively been in the same market cycle for 40 years. Ever since Volcker took the Fed funds rate, uh, you know, and, and rates were in the high teens, we have seen a declining interest rate environment on the whole right. for uh, 42 years, right? Now, the tide's going out and we're in an increasing interest rate environment, or at least we have been. Interestingly, rates are actually lower than they were a year ago now. But because of that, you need to understand if who you're investing with knows how to invest in different market cycles. Part of the problem is it's been a very long time and almost nobody actually has experience in an, a rising interest rate environment. That's a big thing to think about right now and what works in those types of environments and what doesn't. Right. Okay. So what would your approach be to dollar cost averaging into the S&P and letting that be someone's, that's, that's their retirement plan? I, I just think it's a horrible idea. Okay. A, a horrible idea. And there, there's a number of reasons why. One, you are ensuring that you're always buying the market at a peak. And right. the idea is that you're also buying it at a trough. And I have a feeling we'll get into this in the liquidity portion as well. But it's like, I'm always going to do this exact same thing. But the problem is, is there's too many variables in life. Because what if you're out of a job while the market's way down? And when do people lose their jobs? And the market goes down. Right. So are you dollar cost averaging nothing if you lose your job for six months during during the whipsaw? Probably not. You're probably buying with DCA when you have a job and when things are going well and you're paying a premium for the market all the time. Right. The other thing I don't like about it is, is it's just it, it, it assumes like somebody's going to go work for 40 years in a static environment. And they're always going to have the same amount of money to invest and that the market's always going to go up 8%. Totally wrong. What if you... Um, you know, started investing in 2021 at the peak. I mean, there's a really good chance the market goes sideways or down for 10 or 15 years. Are you going to stick with it for that long? Do you have the fortitude to stick? I don't. I don't. I, I think I'm a realist, Eric, about people, about humans. I think that's ultimately what I understand is that humans cannot do what financial advisors tell them that they can do. Very few of them they don't. Can. They don't abide by the model. They, they can't abide by the model because life happens, right? right? Yeah. And so I think that it's a complete investing fallacy that is designed to send as much money into asset gatherers, AUM gatherers as possible. 
to say like, you're not smart enough to run your own investments. And, and by the way, I agree with them in one area. People shouldn't trade. Trading is too hard. Yeah. Less than 1% one, 1 of people should trade. However, it's also not the only ways to invest. And, and so I just think that it is a, a bit of a fool's errand to say this is the only way to do it. Completely agree. All right. Thank you for that, Keller. Um, the valuation of the stock market. When you look at, when you look at, uh, obviously, let's, let's speak to, let's just kind of just define who we're talking to here because there, there's a wide range. So let's say the investor who's, you know, mid forties, who has been investing for, for 20 years now, who has seen, seen a couple market cycles, mm -hmm. you know, smaller market cycles, not, not the macro one. Um, but then he, he has the, he has enough understanding to, to recognize that, that even though things may seem high, that it's probably going to go up over time, that long, long haul, it's going to go up. How would you tell him to look at the, the valuation of the, of the overall market, whether you're looking at PE ratios and whatever you're using, how would you tell him to, to use valuation of the stock market to shape um, his investment track or his portfolio today? Um, I would point them towards specific people who are absolute experts in this area. Um, I'll give you some names. That works. Yeah, uh, Dr. John Hussman, uh, HussmanFunds.com. Uh, Jesse Felder is excellent at this. Howard Marks is a wonderful market timer. Jim Grant knows what he's talking about in this area, and especially for the pricing of bonds and where bonds are at. Um, interest rate, Grant's interest rate observer. Guys like that, if you read them on a regular basis, every one of those people have free publications that will take your investing knowledge from here to here for nothing, if you'll invest the time. The problem with metrics is that they have denominators that change. Hmm. So people look at price to earnings and say the market is expensive or the market is cheap, but they're fixing in their mind this idea that the denominator is going to say the same, which is the earnings. And the problem with cyclicality in the market is that you might be looking at price and what matters much more is the earnings. And so if you have, if you're in an earnings cycle and you're at a 20 price to earnings, you might say, okay, this is moderately priced. The problem is, is cyclically earnings then very quickly, quicker than you can react, can get cut in half. And the market will price that in before you can even think about it. Right. You know, and so suddenly the exact same price is now double the value or whatever the opposite of value is, right? And right. so I think it's that earnings piece that people don't realize how quickly it can change in a recession. And that's really what gets people off guard. So I look at other things. I look at like the Dow to gold. I look at lumber to gold ratio, which is a, a real world indicator because right. housing is a leading indicator. So lumber to gold is a very interesting one. I look at a GDP to sales price uh, for US stocks. I'll look at John Hussman has a couple of really good metrics. Um, the MAPE is what he calls it. It's a, it's a takeoff of the CAPE ratio that um, uh, Schiller, Robert Schiller created. That's a really interesting one as well that works well. Um, so there's a lot of things out there. And then a very simple one that you can look at is, is simple. It's just price to sales, right? So it's just top line sales. And then, you know, there's margin compression and things that go in within that. But price to sales is a very easy thumb in the air to say, is the S&P expensive or cheap? Right. Um, it's, not as, it's not as precise or technical as some of the other ones, but it at least gives you an idea vis-a-vis -vis history what you're looking at. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. What's so misleading about liquidity? Because everything, as, as we talk about alternative investments, the, the number one knock we get is, is it liquid? And so 
because um, I can I can have my money in the stock market and then I can easily sell that at any point. What is so misleading about liquidity? Liquidity comes in many different forms. Liquidity, if it is cash in your safe at home, I almost said cash in the bank, but we've seen four <laughs> bank failures in the past few weeks, right? That's so, that's the same uh, yes, liquidity in cash in U.S. dollars is not a bad thing, never a bad thing. I, I am an advocate of holding uh, a large amount of your portfolio in cash to be opportunistic or in gold. However, that's a very different thing than liquidity within a security. I believe that liquidity in a security is one of the greater society, which is the optionality to hit sell today. The investment that you, especially the investment that you plan on holding for 40 years, because that's what you're, Aha. that's what you're playing. Just All your worst inhibitions just came true, didn't they? Right. That's exactly right. And so the problem is, is that market fluctuations on things that you can very literally pull out your phone and sell in a second causes you to, your your people operate in two ways, fear and greed. Yep. When they see something go up, their greed brain, greed, greed lizard brain kicks in, they buy. When they see something go down, their fear brain kicks in and they sell. The liquidity is what allows you to do that so quickly. And very few people have the discipline and the market understanding to not fall into that trap. You have to be incredibly well-trained not to, like a professional trader, which almost nobody is or should be. And that's why it's a trap. You know, we invest in things that don't have liquidity generally, Mm -hmm. though we keep liquidity. They don't have liquidity and it keeps us from our worst instincts. It forces us to expand our time frames. A friend of mine said, yeah, everything I do, I think about doing for five generations and my whole life changed. Ooh, okay. Five generations, 100 years. Yeah. When you start thinking about 100-year investments, it changes your mind about what is wealth. It changes your mind about where it comes from. It changes your mind about how you should be investing and what you should be thinking about. And it's not easy because there are going to be times where you feel like you would love to be chasing the latest crypto, you feel like you should be chasing the, la- the latest stock or, you know, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, it forces you to stay disciplined when you buy things that are real and don't have liquidity. Yeah. Okay. All right. So shift gears a little bit. Barbell strategy. Sure. What is that in your opinion and why do you subscribe to it? Yeah. And, and I would say I'm a, I'm a, well, I'm blocked on Twitter, but I didn't seem to love. So I guess I'm not, you know, uh, a a lover of of everything that he writes. But I think this idea has some merit, and it just goes along with everything else we're saying. Where the barbell strategy is, if you picture a barbell at the gym, is there's nothing in the middle, and then there's weights on each side. And so in this case, what he's saying is that you should have an uneven barbell where about 85% of it is in ultra safe, 85 to 90% is in ultra safe vehicles. Yep. Things such as um, gold, cash, treasuries, stuff of that nature. I would add very conservatively levered real estate, productive housing or industrial real estate, right? So I would add that onto this side. I actually don't know if Taleb would or not, but you know, I've been in real estate for a long time. And I think that if you're working with the right operators and it's levered appropriately, it absolutely belongs there because it generates cash. It's a basic human need and all these other things. The other side of it is, um, so there's nothing in the messy metal. The messy metal would be stocks, bonds, all of these products that you're actually sold, right? And I think you have to think of it that way. I'm being sold something. Sure. I'm not investing in something, being sold something. On the other end of it is much more speculative uh, what we might call moonshots. It's venture investing. 
It may be private equity investing. It may be your cousin's restaurant that, you know, you think they're really cool and they want to go do something and you're going to, you're going to start them out and help them and take a piece of the action. It's things that you expect to lose your money in, but if they hit, they might pay you five, 10, 50, a hundred times your money, right? So it's nothing in the middle that is designed to make you three, 4%. It's nothing in the middle that takes 40 years of saying, oh, look up and to the right. It's nothing there. It's all either very conservative or very speculative. And the idea here is that you're protecting your capital. First of all, you're protecting your stack. You're not breaking rule number one, um, but you're still allowing yourself the tremendous upside of some of these other ideas. Okay. Okay, next question. So inside this barbell here, as you've as you, you've outlined that you've got, you're going to have more conservative real estate and you're going to have a whole another side of real estate, which is going to fall to the speculative side of that. Well, you hit that first and after that, I want to go into why real estate. So what real estate is going to fall to the speculative side? Uh, stuff that's ultra levered. Y- yeah. Is, just, that, is that 80% or is that 90%? Depends on the deal, but I would say anything that's 80% would be considered maximum leverage, right? Things that might be more cyclical in nature, like resort property investing or, you know, buying in a hot location, buying when there's been, where there's been a huge run up. Um, it's actually very easy to speculate in real estate. And I think that's part of the trap of it is it all gets lumped into one sort of bucket and it doesn't really belong there. So no matter what the cycle is, you can always be speculating or you can always be very conservative in real estate, depending on what it is. Okay. So the single family home, long-term rental that's levered at 65%, you're going to put that on the on the left side? Or obviously it's still, still going to depend on the, the market and... Yeah, the value that they got. Extremely dependent on on where you're at, what the cash flow is, what sort of debt financing you have on it, who's operating it, what kind of tenant base you have. There's there's probably a hundred different factors that we could talk about of whether or not something like that is 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 more speculative or whether or not it's it's more on the conservative side. Okay, all right. So for you, you are a if we said first and foremost, you're a real estate investor. Yeah, that, that's that's where you have uh, really cut your teeth. Why real estate? Because it is. I I think that I understand it. Okay. It's a basic human need. I think it's very easy to recognize what makes a nice piece of real estate versus a uh, a non desirable piece of real estate. It's tangible. You can touch it. You can feel it. I love architecture. I love the beauty of it. I love the idea of it. I love the sweat equity of it. I love what humans can produce within real estate. I love that you're taking hundreds or thousands of different elements, goods, and putting them together to make something more useful. That to me is the idea of wealth, right? Everything on earth is either grown or mined. And real estate brings together those two components really beautifully. And I love that about it. I don't like anything that's created on a computer. Yep. I don't like uh, things that are intangible in nature. Uh, and there's some wonderful businesses out there that are intangible in nature. Absolutely. But um, they tend to eat themselves. And so I think there's something about real estate that will never go away. It's the Lindy effect as well. That's why I love gold too, is that it has a, since the dawn of history, real estate in some form or another has been has been there. It's also very hard to produce. Mm. Very hard to produce. Right. I also love the idea of, and it, it, you can separate out sort of real estate, which is, you know, what's being improved upon on land and land. But I look at land as something that absorbs the economic output of everything around it, good or bad. 
Sure. But it absorbs the economic output over time of things good or bad. And thus, I think it's more predictable than other things. It's not predictable. Nothing in life is predictable. But it's more predictable than the whims of Wall Street and other things. Okay. And that obviously fits right into your five-generation type investment. So fantastic tech companies that are that are making great strides and great companies, great founders and all that. But 100 years from now, they're probably not around. That's, that's fair. On, on, on the average, that's going to be safe bet. Yeah. And, and frankly, you know, I know you didn't ask about this, but that's, that's also my problem with Bitcoin. Yeah. We have no idea what it is or if it'll be here. We have no idea. And so I, I think that tech companies have a long history of eating themselves and some of them get bought out and you make fantastic returns, but not many of them have a long history of, of still being around after three or four generations. Right. right. And so it's, it's, there's definitely money to be made in those areas. I'm not here to disparage that at all, but. I don't know. There's something about uh, there's something about real estate and the tangible nature of it that um, lets me sleep easy at night. So, from an investment characteristic standpoint, you're going after real estate for you know it's going to be there for the predictability of it, and then let's talk just a little bit on on the returns and how you're how you're going after real estate. Are you you know what are you projecting or or are you even projecting as you're looking at growth inside real estate from it from because again back to that mid-40s person who has no real estate outside of their primary home they, they just have money in the market because that's what their advisor told them to do so they've got some in the ira in a non-qualified account and they've got the rest in in their 401k yeah i mean it's incredibly property specific right about what you're going to project and even what you're trying to accomplish with it I, I think we didn't touch on this earlier but another reason for real estate is you can add leverage to it much safer than most investments you know, and so if you want to start looking at time stamping the the value of money, then real estate's the best way to do that. And and I'm not here to argue that real estate is an inflation hedge. It's not really that, but you can stamp X percent of the deal and leverage into day's value, yeah. right? So if you get a, a a fixed thirty year mortgage, you're taking what the value of that is today and paying for it effectively today, knowing that over time, you're probably going to uh, raise rents, be able to bring more income from this with a qualified operator and ultimately pay for today what something you have in 25, 30 years. The other thing I think about it that is so fascinating is that very often the best locations are the most dangerous investments in real estate. One of the biggest lies I've ever heard is location, location, location. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Go on. Well, go look at what's happening in New York office right now. Sure. So suddenly it's asset class, asset class, asset class, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I mean, even New York hotels, New York hotels are one of the riskiest investments that you can possibly make. I've seen some unbelievable deals in the worst neighborhoods. It isn't so much location, location, location. It's what can be done at this location that's not currently being done. So, so real estate is a business. Real estate is not an asset class. And so if you take real estate and you have a great operator, they're wanting to buy non-stabilized properties. Sure. That's what they do because they're trying to take the net operating income and double or triple it, right? That's what they do. And so it's a business though, and there's skill on the operator, right? So you're you're betting on the skill of the operator to do it. And oftentimes it's the dilapidated buildings that you know, have been not least or not paid attention to that they're the best possible investments if you have the right operator. And so 
I think it's a very counterintuitive business. And you know me well enough to know that if it's counterintuitive, I probably like it. <laughs> that is very yeah. true. All right. We are going to uh, take that to go ahead and stop here for, for this week. And we are going to pick up here uh, on part two of this for, for next week. We're going to get into a little bit more of what Isaac's talking about behind this net operating income and how we can drive up the value of the property through driving up the NOI. And then we're going to get into active and passive real estate and other types of alternative assets. So Isaac Bennett, thank you very much. Great to be here. Hope you will join us next week. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.